How's it growing, folks? Welcome back to the very last Here We Go. The podcast that always brought you the best interviews it could from those in the know, inside and outside of this crazy cannabis community. I am your host for the very last time, Eddie Salaya, former cannabis and breaking news reporter for the Arizona Daily Star and TucsonMarijuanaGuide.com. You you heard that all right, folks. This is the very last Here We'd Go episode that you'll be hearing, at least for a little while. I ended up being uh, offered a new position outside of the newsroom, uh, an offer I could not refuse. I'll explain a little more at the end of today's episode, but right now, what I will tell you is that you can still follow Here We'd Go on Instagram at here.weed.go to find out any updates for the brand in the future. I'm carrying that myself. Uh, And you can follow me, of course, at Reporter Eddie Travels. That's Reporter Eddie with an I-E, never a Y, Travels to see what I'll be getting up to starting in mid-January 2024. But before I get all (laughs) misty-eyed, like I'm not already, I did want to give a proper introduction to my last guest. Well, the last guest here we'd go guest that I'll be interviewing, Sean Williams. Sean is a journalist like me, but unlike me, Sean is a particularly brave fellow. He has written stories for publications ranging from The New Yorker to Rolling Stone magazine, dealing with drug trafficking, uh, traveling in war zones, talking with human smugglers, and writing all the stories that come with those topics and characters. For our interview, though, I focused on one of Sean's latest pieces, his story titled Purple Haze, Cannabis Returns to Kathmandu. It's a story of rediscovering some of cannabis's original mother strain seeds in Nepal. But it's also a story of Nepal itself and how the country has evolved over the last 70 years. It's told by Williams through the backgrounds of his two guides. Without giving too much away, I'll let you listen to our conversation And I'll let you know that the piece is available in the November issue of Harper's Magazine. Believe me, you'll know why I saved this interview for last. Or at least the last one for now. Our conversation begins, like so many of mine have before it, with the story of how Sean first got high. I'm an infrequent uh, cannabis consumer, so I'm not like a huge smoker myself. But um, yeah, I do enjoy the odd uh, the odd time. And um, I guess we're going back to a horribly uh, long time <laughs> ago. God, I am old these days. Uh, back to back to London in the UK, um, where I'm from originally. And uh, yeah, I guess I had a clique of friends, and we would go off to the back of the cricket pitch. And uh, we would go and smoke a bowl and have a good time. And 
Um, yeah, it was certainly a lot nicer than most of the kids who were going out drinking at God knows what age and doing <laughs> stupid stuff. And we were just sitting and enjoy, enjoy our time and, uh, and mess around. So I, I think that's, it's kind of depressing when I think back how long ago that actually was these days, but it was, it was good memories. Well, I will tell you, just hearing that, it kind of speaks to the universality of the first experience, because that wasn't very much different from my own, where we would sneak yeah. kind of into the neighborhood park behind all the houses and and smoke the little plastic bong that one of my friends had gotten a hold of and pour some Gatorade in it. So very, very, very <laughs> yeah, similar. I guess, uh, I guess just substitute baseball diamond for a cricket wicket, Exa and then that's, that's pretty much the same thing. There you go. So let's talk a little bit about where you put Purple Haze together, where this is all based. It is based in Nepal. Talk a little bit about the history with cannabis and Nepal and Nepal's place on the hippie trail. A lot of my listeners might not know what that is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine today um, because in, in many respects of the war on drugs, but the hippie trail was hugely popular with Western tourists back in the kind of 60s, um, running into the early 70s. And basically, you know, you've got your you've got your hippie culture, you've got free love, you've got everyone coming coming over to Europe and Asia to try and get a slice of kind of the old world, uh, especially from the States. Um, and what folks would do is they would go from, I don't know, they'd start off somewhere like London or Amsterdam or Paris, and then they'd head roughly in the direction of Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, um, Nepal, India. And they'd, they'd find themselves at one of the, the terminuses there. Um, usually it was Kathmandu. It could have been, you know, going down to Goa, something I've done in my life, which was a very different experience, I guess, thanks to the war on drugs. But this was a kind of, you know, self-experiential trip. Um, we're talking getting old rattle traps, old buses, VW campers, and, and sending them across halfway across the world. Um and really, I, I think especially for Europeans and Americans, it was a chance to get a slice of cultures that were at the time really open, really different and very much closed off from the rest of the world. So you could get this kind of chunk of ancient history and completely crazy different culture and also, you know, smoke a bowl or do other drugs which were already available at the time. Um, and I read a bunch of books by you know, famous writers at the time, Paolo Coelho went across on the hippie trail. Um, didn't so much enjoy his book on the hippie trail, weirdly, <laughs> but um, it's just, it was just kind of the done thing for a whole generation of young Western, you know, boys and girls, and they would have a pretty crazy time. Um, and Kathmandu was kind of the, kind of the Shangri-La at the end of the trail. Although, as I kind of got into in my research, Shangri-La is a bit of a misnomer as well. So you touched in that answer on the war on drugs and how the hippie trail kind of has a before and after, and that after is the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. I've had a couple of episodes of this podcast where we touch on the societal ills and upheaval of communities brought on by the war on drugs here in the United States. But you can you touch a little bit on what those effects of the war on drugs had in Nepal? And, and you illustrate that in the piece, but can you illuminate that for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty insane, actually. You you really can't overestimate the impact of Richard Nixon <laughs> on on Kathmandu, which is kind of a bonkers sentence. But 
I mean, I, I, I should say I run a podcast as well myself about organized crime around the world. And a lot of the origin story of the stuff that we do, whether it's cartels, whether it's illicit substance abuse all over the world, it comes down to the war on drugs. And in Kathmandu and Nepal's case, there is a very, very good um, thesis basically to be leveled that the war on drugs from the early 70s caused a civil war in, in Nepal. So what you had was that cannabis going back thousands of years. I mean, it's one of the first places that ever grew cannabis. Uh, you know, humans were first kind of farming the stuff going back to the Tibetan plateau and over the Himalayas, you know, God knows how many thousands of years. And people just used it artisanally, you know, to feed their cows, to make them more hungry or to weave into hemp clothing or to use oil in, in lamps or, you know, they didn't just smoke it, although they did that too. And it was all tied into the religion and the ancient Vedas of Hinduism as well. So um, people would gather once a year for a festival called the Shiva Ratri. Uh, Shiva himself, one of the kind of gods of, of Hindu, was the pretty king stoner himself. And so <laughs> this was like not considered in any way a taboo or even a drug. I mean, in the modern sense of the word, I mean, people, it was just woven into everyday life. Um, and in the 60s, amid the kind of anti-Vietnam protests and the hippie movement, and um, the right wing in America becoming very concerned um, about drug use, but really it was a dog whistle for you know, communism. Some people thought it was, or just racial equality. Exactly, um, I think yeah. Nixon and his advisors were coming out pretty, pretty flat on the nose and going, communists and blacks, uh, we want to sort of push those guys down and yep. they're smoking weed. So let's mess up weed all over the world. So, he kind of put pressure on the king at the time, Birendra, uh, to outlaw the drug. And so Birendra had a bit of a sweetheart deal. Sort of the, the, the grapevine says that he was given a pretty big payout by the White House um, and none of it made its way out of the president or the, the king's palace in Kathmandu. So that's a bit of a shock. And overnight, a kind of key pillar of Nepal's ancient culture is erased. You've got the king's troops going out into the countryside, burning crops. I mean, this is a cash crop for many of the poorest people in the country. Um, I, I met a, a few people who would tell me, obviously this is in the beautiful foothills of the Himalayas, right? So the, the rich people would live up high and they would have access to other crops that could grow up high. But the poorest of the poor would live down low and it was very hard to grow anything other than cannabis. I mean, cannabis was by far the wealthiest crop you could grow. So you kind of just wiped out access to income for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people overnight. Um, and not only that, you're kind, of, you're kind of tearing down this part of their culture. They don't, you know, these people are mostly illiterate. They don't know what's going on. They've just got these thugs coming into their land, burning everything to cinders. Um, and so from that onwards, the very it's no coincidence that the very areas that were affected worst by this ban were the areas in which Maoist rebels started to kind of bivouac and, and bed down. And from there, they kind of fomented a, a opposition to the government. And they said they were going to raise a red flag of communism on um, Chomalunga, if I'm getting that right, which is the native name for Mount Everest. So 
you can actually very clearly trace the the seeds of a civil war that broke out in the 90s um back to that ban in i think 73 that is probably the best answer i could have asked for to really set the stage <laughs> to set the stage for this next question which really gets into the piece purple haze that you wrote which i is an engrossing read it is excellent again october issue of harsh of harper's uh, before we get to the heart of the story can you tell me and my listeners a little bit about the subject madan right i believe i'm pronouncing that madan right? yeah Madonna. yeah um how did you get in Joseph, contact yeah <laughs> yes how, how um, did he become the subject of this piece and how did you get in contact with him yeah i mean it's kind of just serendipity really i went out there so actually I'll tell you a story about how not to do journalism. So <laughs> I went out, to, I was about to have a child and I was coming off the back of a long period of kind of not doing a lot of reporting and me and my partner were moving countries. And uh, we were just, I was just like, I I wanted to look for an adventure. I've done a lot of stuff on the war on drugs, whether, whether looking into it in Iran or Afghanistan elsewhere. And I looked at Nepal, kind of glanced over the history and, did something that I don't really do very often, which is just book a flight and go. So I was like, I'm going to be tied down to a very young child for a while. I might as well do a crazy reporting trip. And it was only really when I landed there that I got in touch with my editor Harper's and said, oh, hey, by the way, I think there's a story that really fits the mag. Um, normally, I'd get the guy to, you know, throw me a bunch of money and send me places. But <laughs> this was kind of this is kind of arse end of that. And um and so I, I kind of dug into this community of political activists that were trying to bring legal weed back to Nepal. The first guy I met um, was a guy called Raji, who features in the story. And we'd met on a couple of occasions in Kathmandu for coffee and, and, and dinner. And, and he had his own story. Um, he was HIV positive. He was big in that community. And through that he'd got in touch with a bunch of guys who were also HIV positive who were sort of on the side of that campaigning for for legal cannabis mm. but there was one guy he introduced me to Madan who then kind of stole the show I mean he was just a different breed to everyone else um he was really bolshy really loud really kind of entertaining to be around had this kind of skaterish appearance and sort of um, bearing and he was like look i want to be the influencer that that pushes this stuff i want to use social media to reach out to people he was the one being really keen to like go and get seeds from all of the different provinces in nepal and so when i met him um he then said well look i'm gonna head out to kind of where the war began in the middle of this area called rolpa um you want to come with me my pal he's like he lived in kansas driving trucks and like okay what um <laughs> and so all stories need a bit of a journey right so from from sort of bumming around Kathmandu and trying to pick up the story I was like well now I've got you know Madan and who I'd like to find out to be Dipesh and his mad sort of Mahindra four by four going off into a going off into the Himalayan foothills to find the source of the the war and um I was like okay now this is a really good story so it just kind of spiraled from there and then obviously I'm spending days on the road with the guy and he's I mean he veers from sort of like savant to complete lunatic from one minute <laughs> to the next so um 
it was nothing if not extremely uh, entertaining. <laughs> it sounds like you were kind of at the mercy of of what he wanted what he wanted to do and what he wanted to show you at that point. Oh yeah, then. happy happy to do so. As well. Yeah. <laughs> so let's without giving away too much of the piece, uh, I want to talk to my listeners a little bit about Madan's kind of mission, uh, which is to to really find those land race seeds of some of the original strains of cannabis talk about what he explained that that calling of his to you what what it really is driven by and and let listeners know a little bit about what the what these sort of land race uh strains mean why they're so important within the larger marijuana cannabis community well yeah i mean there's there's so many different threads to that first off for madame joseph i'm going to call him joseph Joseph, yeah 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 um for Joseph, the the Landrises were they they meant something to him that was bordering on religious, I think, because he'd gone through a hideous background that his life was kind of closely intertwined with the war. Um, you know, t- to give little away, he he'd lost a major family member to the Maoists during the war. But it actually ideologically he wasn't against them either. So he had kind of had this interesting mindset with that. Um and he'd kind of gone off on this exodus across the border to India, where he helped fellow HIV sufferers. And he fell in with really interesting communities out there. I think he felt an affinity with transgender and, and LGBT um, Indians and Nepalese because they were so badly treated. And he suddenly he saw how cannabis was helping these people kind of get over various ailments and psychological trauma. And so he kind of went back to Nepal with a mission of, right, what's the history behind this i don't really know that i don't know why it's illegal because that was a whole generation who never even knew the past really they've been torn it's kind of like colonialism really they, they'd had their culture sort of ripped away from them and also he was like look this i've seen the benefits of this thing i've seen what it can do i know it grows wild on the hills and all the farmers are just smoking it you know whatever so why why are we not making it legal so i think combined with that he he wanted to legalize it, which is one thing, but going off into all of the different provinces, which are, as you can imagine, like wildly different and really remote. I think there is a sense from people in the kind of activist community there and increasingly in politics that this belongs to them. You know, like during the hippie days, people would come out to smoke Nepalese weed. They wouldn't come out to smoke any old crap going around. Like they wanted the real deal. They wanted the stuff that I think I spoke to a guy that ended up illegally trafficking it into the States. And he was like, I just had to sit on the floor and like hold myself down because I was tripping so hard. This stuff was like renowned throughout the hippie trail Europe and the US as like the best stuff in the world at the time. Um, And kind of the deep, sad irony of it is that the intervening 50 years, the rest of the world has sort of managed to create strains and their own seeds that have sort of superseded the Nepalese weed in, in terms of strength and, and, and other kind of properties. And they're like, no, the mother stee is here. This is where it's from. Uh, we've we've kind of been colonized by countries that are now legalizing it. And uh, so getting all the original strains is, in one sense, like a big gesture to show the history and kind of bring awareness to the past and the war and everything that happened, but also just to show people we can do this like we can bring people back on the trail if not 
build an economy of our own around weed as well. What is the current mood then? You you really did a good job of illustrating kind of how that culture of cannabis was was really almost ripped out um, of the culture, uh, the larger Nepalese culture. How is that being treated now, both by the government and socially? Uh, is there a little bit of a movement to to get that hippie trail back to to attract Westerners? in some sense, back to trying these mother races and, and just uh, the cannabis available there in Nepal. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird one because now it's getting to such a point, and I guess I mentioned this in the story, that um, the politics has really gone full circle, or gone 180, rather, and the politicians in their parliament, almost everyone is pro-legalisation now. So... The movement is pretty embedded. It's it's cemented there, and it will be legal like very very soon. Um, among activists, obviously, that's that's a different thing. And but uh, it's kind of had this urban rural divide now, where people in the rural areas who are also the poorest in the country, they they smoke and use the drug just like they used to. They just hide it, and um, the people in the cities kind of have this sort of like almost bourgeois view of it as something dangerous that I guess we've seen all over the world since. Mm. So there's a whole generation that grew up with it as something bad in inverted commas. Um, but that's changing as well. I think young people, you know, are taking their cues from other nations and they're realizing it's not, it's, it's not anything to be worried about. Is part of it have to does, and this is somewhat unrelated. Does part of this have to do Thailand, which was also, I believe part of kind of that mm. hippie trail or, that movement of the uh, counterculture within the 60s and 70s, um, it, it has federally legalized cannabis out there. Has there Was there ever any mention of that where it's like, hey, we, we weren't the only ones who are coming back to really our traditional kind of spot within the larger cannabis world as like, hey, this, this is the beginnings. This is the origin spot. Yeah. Yeah, loads of people did. Um, Dipesh, who if people read the story is a bit of a mad cat character um <laughs> speaks with a kind of midwestern drawl um he wants to set up a, a hotel in thailand and kind of you know make use of the legalization there everyone goes to thailand i think it's important to also to note that these countries aren't just in it for it's not just kind of like a future thing for them they really resent how the war on drugs bred an entire criminal industry i mean it turned the farmers who were shifting it across the border into India into gangsters overnight. And cartels took over a lot of the, the transshipment routes. People began to use harder drugs. Um, heroin addiction became a huge issue all, all over Asia and Southeast Asia. I mean, in Thailand as well, um, I've been out reporting in the Golden Triangle where you know the world's meth basically all comes from. This didn't exist before the war on drugs i mean other industries exist not like crime just sprouted out of nothing but people really um suffered they really really suffered on a daily basis so they're trying to thailand's a big move um but from what i understand i don't know a lot about like the thai stuff but the, the nepalese weed is considered far superior so they reckon they could bring people back to the country like they did in the 60s yeah my next question really has to do with kind of the journalism you do. Um, it obviously involves stories like Purple Haze, but you also had a story in the last few weeks that came out 
in Vice that was a very madcap kind of uh, involving a uh, uh, a drug dealer and a cartel out in Australia, if I believe, if I read that right, right? Or uh, was that the big story? Wait, which story are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I, my... I haven't done one for Vice in a while, but um, it was a. Uh, are you talking about the Rolling Stone? Yeah, right the Rolling Stone. Yes, 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 yes. I've done it. I mean, uh, wait, which ones are we talking about? You might have a different <laughs> Sean Williams. Um, I thought it was one where a guy tried to frame you, basically. Like he was basically trying to bring you in and, like, hey, like I'm I'm showing you all this, and he was basically trying oh. to frame you as part of the like, hey, this is actually all it's all on him sort of thing. Well, there's, I mean, I did one for Rolling Stone recently about a con man where uh, he was trying to get me involved in his con. Exactly. Kind of did a yeah. pretty good job of doing so, actually. So I tend to. I tend to kind of go for people on the edge of how, society. That makes sense. Yeah. How how did how did you kind of come to this kind of reporting? I I've kind of gotten myself into the at least the cannabis side of things, but it's more been the uh, what do we want to say? Not the gray market or the black market end mm. of things that I've been covering. So how how do how do you get into those worlds? Actually, it was kind of um, I became interested in reporting on sort of organized crime and, and stuff like this because it's actually it's far more dangerous but it's actually easier to report than kind of a- access journalism you know like uh-huh. if you're a freelancer i mean i went freelance from from a pretty young age because i couldn't get a foot in the door in the uk and i traveled around the world trying to sort of bum around and make a living and it's very hard to persuade the president or the prime minister of a nation to give you an interview if you've got your name and no press card but it is quite easy to hang around on the streets and speak to regular men and women about kind of what affects them on a daily basis. Plus, I mean, in my opinion, it's far more interesting. I don't really care what politicians think. So, yeah, it, I kind of fell into that because I found it. I found that the, the characters far more interesting, basically, and and they still are. How do you deal with that danger element? Because that for me is the big thing where it's like, I kind of like being uh you know the regular paycheck and not having to worry about maybe uh <laughs> somebody knowing my phone number who i might not want to so that that sort of thing yeah there's i mean there's there's like practical steps that you can take to make yourself you know safer i mean i've got all kinds of encrypted apps and silly programs on my computer that keep people out of the crown jewels but i think on a day-to-day basis if you're doing stuff on like war and organized crime you just have to keep like most people don't want to cause you any harm. Like they're basically people are basically not dicks. So <laughs> I think you just have to keep a kind of, you have to keep in mind why people are speaking to you and why they're meeting you and what their incentives are for doing certain things. And going, I think going into stories, being very clear eyed about the fact that you are invading someone's space mm. and you are asking them to t- tell you very intimate things about their lives. And that that's a privilege rather than a right. And you should be really careful with that. And I think if you're willing to spend a lot of time with people and hear their story rather than just get a soundbite or, you know, get a quote for a newspaper piece and they realize that you're in it for something a bit more than, you know, just a sort of five minute bit, then I think people open up to you and I think they give you a lot more. I think if they see respect, they'll give you respect back. And 
um i guess that just translates to any part of life really but in journalism if you if you put the time in you'll get you'll get the rewards yeah as kind of a final question, what do you, what have you heard from Joseph from Depeche uh, since this story has come out? Have they have they read the story? Are they aware of it? And and kind of what what is that? What have they found the reaction to be both at home and maybe from abroad as well? Yeah, I'm funnily enough, I'm I only just got my copy, my free copies of Harper's Magazine through the mail in New Zealand because I was living in Europe at the time when I wrote it. So they sent it there and it got pinged back. So I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of my own money sending those copies out to Madan so he can send it to his pals in Kathmandu. But he has read it. Yeah, he loves the story. Um, he is still working on his kind of homebrew stuff. Um, Dipesh is also, I think Dipesh bought a bunch of land out in the middle of nowhere in Nepal, near where we traveled to. And he wants to set up his own kind of weed lodge and B&B. <laughs> stuff and i think he's still got designs on some kind of a thai <laughs> motel to do with cannabis i don't know like the guy pings out a million sort of ideas a minute so i i don't know what's going on from one day to the next but i do stay in touch they're lovely they're like genuinely lovely people i was really skeptical at first when i met them uh because i thought they were just trying to sort of like ennoble basically just like a you know weed growing service but they do believe in it and they they are really really great guys to spend time with if you can put up with kind of 12 hours of new metal in a, in a four by four which <laughs> that's, is a ask, bit grating. that's asking a lot <laughs> man new metal oh, yeah man. Well, i didn't i didn't think i'd come back from the pool wanting to hear fred durst voice less you know i thought <laughs> i i didn't think i'd be hearing more of him when i went out to the himalayas but keep, there you roll, go. keep rolling 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 yeah um <laughs> So what kind of response have you got from this piece? Uh, have Has it been just kind of journalists like myself trying to like, hey, like, what's it like in Nepal? Or, or are you getting a reaction from kind of any and anybody on the street? It's an interesting one because it's like, it really is a historical piece with a guy in the middle. So it's it's a bit more niche than if I'd sort of written it straight up about Madan as a profile. But I've got a lot of interest from guys wanting to do documentaries about the, the drug war more generally. Um, I, I'm thinking about maybe diving into a big project about the war on drugs in Asia and how it's kind of like caused a lot of the conflicts there. I mean, the Taliban, like <laughs> this is uh, the Iranian revolution. You know, you can trace all these things to the war on drugs in many ways. This is like the most seismic thing that's happened in, in many countries um so i would like to stay on topic uh and yeah i've had some interesting folks reach out to me with their own tales of being in Kathmandu, kind of board houses in the 60s and having a pretty good time by all accounts so <laughs> i appreciate all people that reach out but yeah i think i would like i think a documentary on this subject would be fascinating because not a lot of people really know about nepal at all let alone you know the war that they went through it's crazy ideological war i mean in Maoist, I mean, everyone thought that communism ended in 89, but these guys were going into the 2000s. They're still technically in government, although they've kind of shown their ass being corrupt and <laughs> useless. Um, it is an yeah. interesting read. Uh, I, I definitely highly suggest it. Like I said, October issue of Harper's. Where can people who are interested in your work read more of it? Or where can they find you on social media, website? Uh, give us some place to find you. Yeah, I'm trying to stay off social media, I guess, as most people are these days. But I'm on uh, S. Williams Journal is my Twitter handle. 
Um, I've got a website of my work called seanwilliamswrites.com. And then the podcast that I mentioned, Underworld Diet, people can find that at underworldpod.com. So we we delve into organized crime stories from all around the world. From I think I'm, I, I'm heading out to Papua New Guinea, actually, in a couple of weeks to do a kind of crime-related story for Harper's, which I can't really talk about. Actually, it's a bit weird, but um, that will be out soon. Uh, so more weird adventures to come. Well, if there's anything I learned from this conversation, it was that Richard Nixon ruined a lot more than just a uh, pot here in the United States. It sounds like uh, oh, yeah. he was an equal opportunity ruiner around the world. So, <laughs> Amen. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, Sean Williams, thank you for jumping on Here We'd Go and giving me a little bit of your time today. I really do appreciate it. I'm glad you could come on and let more people know about this piece. It really is excellent. Uh, and hopefully our, our paths cross soon again. Definitely. Cheers, Eddie. It was a pleasure. All right. Definitely, man. You have yourself a good one. I want to thank my very last Here We Go Arizona Daily Star edition guest, Sean Williams, for coming onto the show. We actually spent most of October and like the beginning of November trying to figure out how to make our interview work because Sean, who lives full-time down in Australia, uh, and of course on top of walking upside down, uh, the Aussies are also like 18 hours ahead of us in the future or something like that. Uh, So we had to work out the time difference. But it was great to finally sit down and talk with Sean and hear about what it takes to really get into reporting you know, there on the spot, on the scene. Not to make a direct comparison to what Sean does because he has to travel to faraway lands into literal war zones at times or occupied territories. Uh, but I'll actually be doing a little bit of on-the-spot reporting in my new job. To start beginning on January 16th, so six days from today, I'll begin my new broadcast television career as a multimedia reporter for Kega 9 News here in Tucson. That means pre-recorded stories and live on-camera look-ins for me. I'll be making my living off the evening news, as Don Henley might say. So if you live in the Tucson area and have cable television, you'll actually be seeing a lot more of me. It just won't be all weed all the time. And I am okay with that. This move, of course, means that as of 11.01 p.m. on January 11th, 2024, tonight, when I'm recording this, I am no longer an employee of Lee Enterprises or the Arizona Daily Star, and thus no longer the host of Here We'd Go and curator of TucsonMarijuanaGuide.com. At least for now, anyways. While the name Here We'd Go and all the episodes, content, and stories I created under the name will forever be the property of Lee Enterprises, I haven't completely closed the door to producing, hosting, editing, and distributing an interview-based podcast focused on the cannabis industry all on my own. I mean, I've basically been doing that for the last six months anyways. 
In fact, I have a few episodes and interviews saved that I will eventually release. Perhaps here, under the Here We'd Go banner, depending on some pending discussions, or under a new spiritually related banner. Sort of like the cartoon Doug. Remember how there was Disney's Doug that referred to but never directly mentioned or showed events from the original Doug series? We all knew it was based based off Nickelodeon's Doug, but what, whatever. Anyways, when I'm ready to establish that new show back here in the cannabis space, you'll know about it, especially if you follow me on Instagram at ReporterEddie, E-D-D-I-E, Travels, ReporterEddie Travels. In the meantime, for the next few months, I just need to commit myself to some other moving parts in my new role on television, like getting better live and making mini news documentaries three to five nights a week before taking on the podcast mantle as host, producer, everything, Harold Hecuba again, though I love it dearly. But to all my friends out there in the Tucson and Phoenix cannabis communities who might be thinking I'll be disappearing completely, don't worry. Cannabis is still legal in this state. I'll still be out at all the AZ Canna Friends events and vendor fairs that I can make it to. And I will still be looking for a great story to let Tucson know about. It doesn't go away my role talking about cannabis in my new job. Before I close this episode out, I want to give a shout out to a few people, the ones who really made this crazy experiment possible. Woo, okay. <laughs> to my mother and first real guest, Samantha Longenbach. Thank you so much for always being a fan. And, uh, not just of the show, of everything I do. There are many phone calls. You told me to keep my head up and spirit high. And that all paid off, both with this podcast and this new job. But this was definitely the best job up till now that I've ever had. And you were uh, the best mom I could have had uh, and the best interview I could have started everything off with. To Ivana Cancella, I owe you so much for introducing me to the Las Vegas cannabis community before MJ Biz in 2022. You were the first person also to really give me the idea to wick, uh, mix all of my <laughs> traveling well high stories on Instagram uh, and to kind of mix that with all the traveling, you know, um, and I will always uh, forever be grateful for that. And uh, I hope that one day our paths do cross again. To Chris Law and Pascal Albright, your efforts to edit my rambling question answer sessions into coherent, cogent interviews will always be appreciated. Especially now that I do that editing all on my own, uh, the industry is small. So here's to the hopes of working together again sometime in the future. 
And finally, my biggest thanks are reserved to my former editor-in-chief and biggest professional advocate, Jill Jordan Spitz. Jill, thank you so, so damn much for taking a chance on cannabis content here at The Star. And thank you so much for taking a chance on me to be the person to bring that content to people. Before I somehow stumbled into what I once called the best job in the world, i.e. doing this, I was working the breaking news beat, (laughs) that very same beat I will be leaving Thursday. I had pitched an idea for a a pot podcast earlier, but word about development on such a project seemed to have stalled a bit and dissatisfied with my role at the time at the star foreshadowing I pursued an offer to become a business reporter in Austin, Texas I was deciding between staying or leaving a few hours after being offered the job in Texas Jill called me to let me know that she had approval from the Lee higher ups to run the podcast idea let's go for it It was all a go if I wanted to do it. Sitting there, uh, actually it was at my brother's wedding, my brother Tim's wedding. I started considering that uh, although the pay in Austin would have been higher and the nightlife definitely would have been more my speed, I knew that my answer was going to be, I I knew it, I I, I knew what it was going to be. I couldn't pass up uh, an opportunity to cover cannabis becoming legal, especially in my home state, especially in my hometown. It was going to be the best job in the world. We're going to change the world, I told her. And you know what? It did end up being the best job in the world. It really was. And I hope that this crazy, crazy project of mine, I at least in some way changed your world. If I did, or you want to hear what I'm up to in my new job, see what I'm up to in my new job, you can email me at E-P-C-E-L-A-Y-A, C-E-L-A-Y-A. that's E-Edward, P as in Paul, Salaya at gmail.com and don't forget folks keep smoking weed and proving them wrong because here we'd go Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.